Hello, and welcome to the Van Life Lab podcast, where we're all about exploring the trials and joys of van life. I'm Eric, joined today by my two other co-hosts, Kayla and Colby. Today, we're deep diving on the Arctic portions of the Pan Am Highway, as opposed to south of the border that we dove into last week. If you missed it, we also uh, encourage you to go back to episode six and listen to the Central American Pan Am Highway portion. As always, before we dive in, we're sharing where we are on the road, uh, where we are coming to you from. So, Colby, where are we? Uh, today, I think there hasn't been much variety in where we're coming to these, everyone from. Um, we're in Colorado again. This time, we're actually in Avon, Colorado. That might be new. Sitting in another grocery store parking lot. That is winter van life for you guys. Kayla, what about you? I think I'm also coming to us from uh, at least a place that I've definitely been before. I think I've recorded from here before. I am at, uh, I think it's called Surfers in a Hostel in El Sunsal, El Salvador. Very nice. Well, before we officially get started, we want to ask you all to give this new podcast an honest review. The ratings really help us out wherever you're listening to us. We need 10 reviews on Spotify to actually get rated, so it really helps us grow, and we truly appreciate it. Okay. Now let's get to the good stuff. Kayla, you're currently on the Pan Am Highway down in Central America, but when did you do the Arctic portion? Yeah, I left for the Arctic portion of the Pan Am, so heading northbound from the U.S. in late May of last year, so late May of 2022. And what does that route look like? In the last episode, you mentioned that there were several approved routes. I assume it goes through Canada, maybe through Alaska. Yeah, the the U.S. did a funny thing where they technically designated a bunch of different highways as U.S., um, as the Pan American Highway. So technically, there's a bajillion different routes through the U.S. And essentially, what I considered my official route was I started from Missoula and headed due west over to the Seattle area. And then kind of meandered north through British Columbia from there, drove the entirety of the Caribou Highway up British Columbia, did not see a single caribou on the entire Caribou Highway, and then crossed over into the Yukon, heading west over again to get into Whitehorse. Then from there, kind of angled northwest up to Dawson City. And then from Dawson City, I made a fun little side trip over to Haines and Skagway, Alaska, which was my first time in Alaska, before circling back up to Dawson City and from there heading north to head all the way to the Arctic Ocean via the Yukon and the Northwest Territories. Technically, the kind of most official approved route to get to the Arctic for the Pan American Highway would be to have continued west from Dawson City over into Alaska and then head up all the way towards Prudhoe Bay. And I chose not to do that because the highway that goes to Prudhoe Bay actually ends about eight miles before you get to the Arctic Ocean. And then from there, you have to pay for a shuttle bus to get yourself to the Arctic Ocean. Um, so you have a lot less freedom. You obviously can't take your vehicle with you. You can't take your dogs and you can't stay for multiple days out at a time. So when I was doing some research at some point, someone asked me why I wasn't considering going up to Tuktoyaktuk, which is the city, uh, the, the hamlet really, um, in the Northwest Territories where the, uh, the, the Canadian road ends. And I said, because I haven't heard of it, <laughs> um, got up there and uh, you actually can like literally camp at the uh, on the shores of the Arctic Ocean up there. So it was a much better route for me and my lifestyle and what I wanted to get out of the trip. Cool. OK, so it pretty much it is the tip of Alaska is what you're starting from traversing down through Alaska 
to Canada and then through the U.S. And it kind of can vary, um, especially in the U.S. is what it sounds like. I'm curious. The one thing I've always wondered about, because we've also played around with the idea of heading up, especially towards Alaska, can you speak a little bit to the road conditions, especially through Alaska and Canada? Yeah. So I can't speak a lot to the road conditions in Alaska because, as I said, I really kind of just bopped over from the Whitehorse Dawson City area of the Yukon to get into Haines and Skagway of Alaska. So I haven't done all that much driving in Alaska, really. But in Canada, overall, the road conditions were great. Everything kind of once you hit the Dempster Highway, which is the name of the highway that more or less starts north of Dawson City, gets you as far as Inuvik. And then from Inuvik to Tuktoyaktik, it's technically the Canadian Highway 10. Everything north of there is gravel, but is pretty well-maintained gravel. So um, my van got extraordinarily dusty, and you would want, you definitely want to make sure that you've got the tools that you need and you know how to use them in case you do have kind of minor mechanical issues along the way because it's just so extraordinarily remote. But overall, it wasn't like there were potholes or giant rocks or slides or anything like that that I was dealing with at all up there. I don't know why in my brain I just have this vision of like 200 miles of washboard roads now. <laughs> uh, yeah, not quite washboard, but definitely I think our average speeds were in that like 40 mile an hour range. Um, you don't really care to go a lot faster than that just with how how dusty it was. And there were kind of occasional like sections of washboard. But really, I was quite pleasantly surprised by the road conditions north of Dawson. Awesome. Cool. Okay. And then my last question about the route, just from a remote worker's standpoint, and I know you need internet for what you do too, and you have a good eye on how it is. How was the internet and cell service, especially going through Canada? Did you go days without it? Was it spotty? Did you need satellite or anything like that? It was spotty through British Columbia, for sure. I definitely was able to get good internet where I needed it. And basically what I did as I was route planning was that I planned on not working very much at all and had specific days where I had meetings scheduled and planned to be online and then kind of planned my route around that. And then once I hit the Yukon, it did drop off pretty dramatically. So I was able to get pretty good Wi-Fi in Whitehorse and pretty good cell service. I was able to hotspot myself just fine using um, my phone in Whitehorse. And then Dawson City, it started getting pretty bad. The library internet was horrific in Dawson City. And then north of there, I think I went five-ish days between Dawson City and Inuvik before I got cell service again in Inuvik. Um, And it was just, that was like five days of like fully my only communication with the outside world was using my spot beacon. I couldn't get a single text through or anything. Planning to not work is always the best plan. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you do anything special to your van to, I guess, prep it for all of those dirt and remote roads, you know, potential for, you know, breakdowns without service, things like that? Yeah, I, I did a lot of the same things that are generally just considered good practice for preparing for any long road trip. So I really made sure that I knew that my tire jack had all of its parts and that I had a good spare. That was kind of the biggest thing I was really worried about was getting a blowout somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And then I did make sure that I just kind of had, kind of had as far as the van goes, all of the spare parts that I needed. So I made sure to stock up on fuses and other things that are just kind of likely to to break or you know, kind of go wrong. Because while Canadian Tire is pretty ubiquitous and extraordinarily useful, as I said, if you're going kind of five days without being able to get a spot of cell service, you're really going to be in a tough spot if you have any mechanical issues. 
but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't all that much. I did take it into a mechanic as well before heading out and get kind of their professional opinion. And I have a mechanic that I really trust and really like in Denver. Um, and I just, you know, really was like, be hard on the van, be hard on me. Like, tell me everything that you might consider changing. And like, would you give us a clear bill of health to, to go ahead and do this trip? And that gave me a lot of peace of mind to get from him. Yeah. Van, good van maintenance is always, always good practice, uh, regardless of where you are, even if you're just sticking to the easy highways. Uh, what about any special gear you brought uh, for you or your pets? Anything your pets maybe needed? Yeah, I was definitely very focused on safety for this trip. Again, kind of as a solo female van lifer. And right around the time that I was going, as things often tend to go this way, there was a, a solo female van lifer that went missing um, in British Columbia shortly. I think after I passed through British Columbia. But, you know, it was the sort of thing that was on my mind. Um, and I was particularly really worried about bear safety for myself and the dogs. I kept trail running throughout the entire trip and did a lot of, um, particularly on the Dempster Highway, you know, I would just drive along and see a really beautiful scenic ridgeline and pretty much just find the next pull off and then go pick my way through the tundra on like a random trail run. And because you were getting, I, I was up there this time of year, it, which is early. It's early to be in the Arctic in mm -hmm. June. Um, but I specifically wanted to do that because that was when I was going to get 24 hour sun. So I had several hikes that like, you know, I started at 8 PM and, you know, I had one hike where I started at 11 PM and went until three in the morning. So with that, what we were really focused is on, focused on is that the, both of the dogs had visibility best vests. I made sure that they had booties because the, the rock up there is very, very sharp. I have a GPS collar that I will put on my younger dog in particular because he's a little bit more um, more likely to wander. Bear bells for both of them. Biothane leashes, which is something that I've talked about, I think, in brief before, which is kind of a faux rubber or a faux um, leather kind of rubbery material that's really, really good for cold and wet. And then bear bells and bear spray for us. And then just making sure that I had all of my packs set up in a way that it was very easy to maintain my bear spray you know, right up in my chest um, and ready to go in case anything were to happen. And then making sure that I had you know, every single type of map that you could ever desire kind of downloaded, ready to go backups on backups. I knew where everything was going to be. I marked all my fuel stations, um, both on digital saved maps and on physical maps. I just really made sure that I understood my route very well because I've never really done anything quite this remote before and didn't want to make any um, stupid first time mistakes. Those downloaded maps are something I hadn't thought about. I was definitely going to ask about the bear spray, so I'm glad you brought that up. One other thing I thought I heard you mention before was a satellite phone. Did you, when we were talking about uh, service and availability, did you have any satellite phone to send out a potential, you know, signal or message if you needed to and didn't have service? Yes. So yeah, I use a spot beacon, which I believe is 10 or $15 a month. And it gets me I get 10 free texts a month with that as well as kind of a, an SOS button that will automatically send out messages to people in your contact list contact list with like your GPS location. And it's got kind of like pre saved things, you can also use it to just go back and forth with your family if you need to. Um, and I definitely found that really useful. My agreement with my folks in particular is I try to text them every night when I'm home for the night, kind of when I'm safe and try to text them with my GPS location. I also, for the purposes of the northern half of the trip, and I've maintained this throughout the southern parts of the trip, 
have a Google spreadsheet that I've shared with several loved ones. And that Google spreadsheet has um, the GPS locations of where I'm planning to stay or and I overlander links and all sorts of stuff. So I use it for planning, but I also have it shared with like my folks so that if for some reason I were to something were to happen to me, they would be able to literally go into their Google sheet and see like the GPS locations of where I'm supposed to be that night or where I was planning on being that night um, and kind of use that to piece things back together as needed. I remember putting trip plans together for canoe trips. It seems like that, but on a much larger scale. Yes. Yeah, it definitely, uh, I feel like my trip plan, trip leader, you know, guiding planner uh, skills have kind of come through in a really funny way on this trip. But, you know, sometimes it feels neurotic, but, um, and so far it hasn't been necessary, but I think particularly for my dad, it, it makes him feel really good to know that he's got it. And, you know, it's nice to know that people know where you are as well, especially when, if you've got a little scare with a grizzly on a hike or just you know, every once in a while a campsite gives you the heebie-jeebies and it's just nice to know that people know where you are even if you are alone yeah and i think this is the perfect example of like where over preparing is way way better than under preparing like sometimes it's nice to kind of leave room for spontaneity and all those things but when you're embarking on a trip like this over preparing is 100 percent the way to go so i think those are they're great tips i wanted to kind of circle back or just name some offline maps for people. I know when I started getting into adventuring years ago, I didn't know where to start with that. So I thought it would be cool to hear, you know, you said you had a bunch of different versions of offline maps downloaded to your phone and paper. What are some of those apps that you use for that? Yeah. So, I mean, I use, I downloaded my Google maps route and it is a little funny also up there because (laughs) there's literally one road. So it's not so much that you're worried about getting lost as just, you know, having that as a backup, because again, like you literally cannot leave the road. (laughs) It would just immediately get sucked into tundra permafrost and there are no, there are no side roads, but I did also, I make sure I have all trails pro. So I made sure that I had all of the trails that I wanted to hike downloaded. And then I cross-referenced that with a guidebook that I found in um in whitehorse and all of this this really intense level of planning almost all of this was kind of post whitehorse level of northness i was not this worried about stuff in british columbia Um, but once i got to the yukon and the northwest territories i really started started picking up on this sort of stuff so i had pictures of the guidebook saved on my phone i had the guidebook in my car I have a Topo Maps app that unfortunately I've deleted because it doesn't work here in Central America. So I'm not 100%. It might just be called Topo Maps. And then I also have the Nat Geo Adventure Map for Northwestern Canada. And that came in incredibly handy. Um, that was my big my big map that I had, like my fuel station circled on that I had, you know, anywhere that had a tire repair shop or, um, you know, anything like that. I just had that circled and I just had that propped up on my dash, you know, cool. the entire trip. Okay, now you have the van lifer in me confused. Uh, so you say there's one road and you can't go off it. So where are you sleeping along this highway? Because van lifer side roads are a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, there are no side roads going from the dumpster highway, but there are little like fishing access points. There are a couple... Um, Official campgrounds, I didn't stay in any of them because they charged money. <laughs> but um, And then there's also like a lot of little gravel pullouts and those sorts of things. Some of them are bigger than others. And I actually, and I'll share this with everyone. Um, I, along the way, literally like dropped pins on my Google map, my Google maps everywhere and made like a list of saved um, every single like good looking campsite that I saw along the Dempster Highway. And nice. 
there's a lot. Um, I had a couple that I really, really loved and hit, you know, both north northbound and southbound. That actually kind of got me down and off the road or up and off the road. So there are like some kind of side roads, but most of them are like maybe a half mile long and they're just going up to like a like an airstrip or a radio tower or a gravel bar or something like that. Like they might be for extractive industries or logging or something, but they don't go very far. Um, you really, there's no like driving five miles off the road, let alone 50. Okay. I, I feel much better knowing that there's places to sleep. We will drop that map or whatever we figure out for those spots along the highway. I think that's awesome um, for people. I okay, I'm thinking back to our episode on the Central Pan Am Highway and we talked a lot about borders. So I think we should talk at least a little bit about I guess the Canadian American border because that's the only border you go through. So um how was that for you? Yeah, the 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 nice thing about the US I mean there's a lot of nice things about the US Canadian border. As far as borders go, it's very easy. You really just at the point that we went, you needed to have your passport and you needed to have either proof of your COVID vaccine or proof of a recent COVID test. And then there was an online portal that you needed to complete to enter Canada with kind of a COVID symptom checker sort of thing. I'm not 100% sure at this point now that it's been almost a full year if that is still in place, but at the time it was called ArriveCan. So you just had to do that pretty brief conversation with the border official. They may do a random vehicle search with you. They may not. They did not search me. Um, And I had vaccination papers and everything ready to go for my dogs, but um, was not asked for them. And I did actually, it was funny. So I, when I crossed back into the U.S. to go to Alaska, that border, you know, again, I pretty much showed my passport and they let me back into the U.S. And I went into Alaska and then I crossed back into Canada again um, from Skagway. And that, God, that was just like, A, the most beautiful drive I've ever done in my entire life. And B, um, I was without cell service for like 48 hours before hitting the border. And I get to the border and they asked for my arrive can, you know, like filling out my COVID paperwork on um, an app. And I was like, I don't have cell service. I haven't had cell service for days. Um, I don't know how you guys think I'm supposed to be able to do this. And the border official kind of like looked at me, looked at his, you know, his, his coworker and was like, yeah, just, just go (laughs) Um, and just let me through. You're definitely not the first person they, uh, they've seen that from. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and it kind of, and we talked about this in a Central American um, episode as well. I kind of did the like overly helpful thing where I was like, oh my gosh, like, well, do you guys have Wi-Fi there? Like, I can I can hop out and I can hop out of the vehicle. I can pull over, off over here and I'll go fill it out. And they were like, "No, <laughs> go go away." <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, the borders were really quite smooth. Getting back into the U.S. Um, into Montana, you know, they asked me a couple more questions. I've always found re-entering the U.S. from Canada is harder than getting into Canada from the U.S. But um, you know, not too bad. They just kind of they really want to know where you've been and what you've been up to and make sure that you don't hesitate or flounder too much with kind of basic questions. Whenever I've crossed into Canada uh, for canoe trips, they always ask us if we're bringing any alcohol in and there is like a, a per capita limit. Um, I think it's like a liter or something You know, check the exact number, but they just want to make sure you're not, I guess, avoiding tariffs and bringing cases and cases in to resell. But I mean, I always found just honesty is the best, best policy. Yeah, I definitely got grilled a little bit um, to make sure like weed is a big deal because it's legal in Canada and it's legal in both of the states that I was coming and going from. 
but that does not mean it is legal to cross the border with that. So those are also good things to remember. Just because it's legal on both sides of the border does not mean it's legal to cross the border with it. Great point. I never thought of that. Well, moving on to just highlights of your trip. You know, last time we wrapped up with highlights and lowlights, and I will ask about the lowlights. But uh, this time, let's start with the highlights. Yeah. So the two things I was really focused on for this trip was that I wanted I wanted to swim in the Arctic Ocean and I wanted to spend the longest day of the year north of the Arctic Circle and really experience that 24-7 sunlight. And it was funny because I actually <laughs> very, very quickly, um, I, pretty much as soon as we hit northern British Columbia, once we were kind of in Prince George and beyond, you were getting close enough to 24-7 sunlight that it didn't really matter. Because once the sun is really, you know, the sun is setting at like 2.30 in the morning and rising at 4.30 in the morning, it doesn't really matter whether or not yeah. it's getting dark at any point because you just don't notice anyway. Hopefully you're sleeping. Yeah, yeah. I did wake up at, you know, 3.30 in the morning a couple nights just to like poke my head out of the van and see and was like, well, no wonder my solar panels are so happy. But uh, yeah, so I did, I picked out on my way north, I picked out a ridge line that just looked really, really strikingly beautiful. Um and uh, kind of planned it for myself on the way back south um, to hit on that June 20th, 21st time frame. Uh, and that was the hike that I did where I kind of got up. And I, I started the hike at 11 p.m. and I finished around 3 a.m. And it was this just like absolutely beautiful ridgeline that as far as I can tell doesn't have a name. I have genuinely tried to track down names because I'm sure it does have an indigenous name. Um, but as far as I can tell, I, I, I can't find it anywhere. Um, and it was just this absolutely amazing like 360 degree alpenglow sunrise sunset all happening at the same time everywhere you look it was freezing cold <laughs> but just absolutely beautiful um and then yeah i got to swim in the arctic ocean which um is a highlight in a way um it is just as cold as you would think and i was actually again i was up there so early because <laughs> i was up there in like i think it swam in the arctic ocean on like june 18th ish the ocean actually hadn't thawed through all of the ice, so I didn't quite swim in the Arctic Ocean as much as I swam in the ice melt on top of the ice of the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. It was so cold, but I had my diesel heater going, and I just like I set that to like 85 degrees or something, like ran out, set up my phone, set up my tripod, like got a video of myself, like dumped in, and you can hear me like... <gasps> <laughs> as I'm like coming out of the water, but it was, it was awesome. You know, it was like something I absolutely wanted to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm already like itching to go back. It is just, I mean, the Dempster highway is just one of the most, if not the most strikingly beautiful places I've ever been. And you're just, you're the only other people up there are long haul truckers and other people driving the Pan American highway. You'll see like maybe three or four vehicles a day most days. And it's just, Whoa. it's just absolutely stunning. I've never been that alone before. I've never just had that much solitude. I saw, I want to say nine grizzly bears and 14 black bears over the course of the trip. I oh saw, you know, several caribou. Yeah, it was just, it was just incredible. Like I've never, I've never had anything like that before. I wonder how many people ever get a swim in the Arctic Ocean. I mean, that just seems like such a remote, remote place i mean what a what a way to experience the world and travel and like the freedom that living in a van uh, actually gives you yeah it was incredible and as i said when you get up to tuktayaktuk and so one of the cool things about this road to tuktayaktuk is it actually just opened in 2017 
it's it's just relatively new. It used to just be an ice road, um, and now it's an all-weather road. But you get there, and I kind of got up to Tuk Tuk and I hit the sign that said, Welcome to Tuk. And I was like, I actually didn't know where I was planning on camping that night. I didn't really have a plan for that night. And I was like, I'm just going to keep driving until I get to the Arctic Ocean. like, And then I'll figure out a campsite later. Um, and I kept driving and kept driving until you literally like you're about to drive off the pier to get to, to like be a boat in the Arctic Ocean. And it's a campsite there. And you can just pull over and it's free. And I stayed there like three nights. Um, and yeah, it was just incredible. And like, I, I hope that more people get to experience it. But also, I hope that it really maintains that level of like, remoteness and ruggedness and uh, kind of charm like Tuk Tuk is also a really really uh, just beautiful beautiful Inuit fishing town just yeah a really really special place not to go too far off topic but one thing that popped into mm-hmm. my mind is do you ever have problems uh, finding grocery stores when you're <laughs> this remote yes yes oh my gosh I should have mentioned that when I was talking about planning and prepping um Yes, I definitely stocked up on dry goods. Um, I actually had to stock up more for this trip, or for this part of the trip than I did for kind of Central and South America. Um, so I made sure I had, you know, rice and lentils and, um, you know, Annie's mac and cheese, veg- veggie protein, stocked up on junk food whenever I found a cheap place to get junk food. And then I don't, I didn't eat a lot of fruits and veggies up there. Honestly, it was very hard to find decent fruits and veggies um, along the trip. I think my last good ones were probably at a grocery store in Whitehorse, which, you know, like Whitehorse has a Walmart, like you, that you can find everything you need there. It's just extraordinarily expensive. But north of there, I didn't get a whole lot for fruits and veggies. <laughs> just curious what was the longest you went between like decent grocery stores um i mean that would be white horse to white horse so that was probably two weeks ish and yeah there's there's a decent grocery store in Inuvik. um it's a pretty pretty good sized city um but it is just you know Inuvik is about um, two hours from the arctic ocean and it's in the northwest territories so it's just uh, it's it's even more expensive and just more limited got it all right. Well, back on topic and with any lowlights and challenges that you may have experienced. Yeah. The biggest one was that I didn't have enough time. And I was, uh, that was because I, I basically, I got back from some field work that I was doing in Kenya and 48 hours later left for this trip. And when I got back from the trip, I had about 48 hours before I had to start my next seasonal field work gig. Um, so I was just, I really had like this six or seven week window to do this trip and there was no way that I could expand it. So I definitely felt like I didn't get as much time in a lot of the places as I wanted to. I would have really liked to have, have this be like a three or four month trip, probably not much longer than that because you know, you just don't have summer longer than that up there. Yeah, but and that also early. kind of, yeah, June is early. June was really early. Um, but that does kind of like melt into my other, my other two big hiccups, which one was just because I was up there so early, I missed some of the wildlife that I would have really loved to be able to see. Because the ice wasn't out yet, you couldn't see belugas or narwhals. The polar bears were still out on the ice. Um, so there was just kind of no chance of seeing some of these really, really incredible Arctic mammals that I've always wanted to see. Um, so I'm again, I'm hoping that I'll be able to figure out how to make my way back up there again. Because, you know, everyone asks you if you if you got to see a polar bear while you're up there. And I did not yeah. because there was still so much ice. And then the only, I mean, the bugs were horrific. Um, but that kind of goes almost without saying for Canada. Just the worst bugs I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> of course. Um, but, 
uh, buy bug screens for your van. Um, I got one that's made for a garage door and I just bought a, a ton of rare earth metal magnets and just kind of have those stuck up both on the back of the van and by side windows. And then I have pull over window screens so that if I have my windows rolled down, um, I can put a bug screen over my side windows as well. But, and then actually our other little tip, this worked extraordinarily well is we would just keep a citronella candle burning inside the van all of the time. And that worked really well because basically you would kind of like hit I, I, when, when you're coming and going, at least you'd kind of like whack the, whack the bugs off of the mosquito net on the side door and then cut, like dive in and out of the van. Um, but having the citronella candle going inside the van helped a lot more than I'm sure we've all kind of experienced having a citronella candle going, uh, near your picnic or something and it doesn't do all that much because you're in um you're in you know the outdoors in open air but inside the van it really did seem to help a little bit interesting great tips any other low lights so this is a little bit of a challenge a little bit of a story a very close miss of a low light when i was in eagle pass which is kind of your only grocery store it's not even a grocery store your only gas station um repair shop that sort of thing in between dawson city and Inuvik just like this little tiny gas station on the side of the road. Um, I got word from some truckers that the ferry, the Peel River Ferry was closed. So to get from, to, to actually get from the, the Dempster Highway all the way over to Inuvik, there are two ferries that you must cross. One's on the Mackenzie River and one's on the Peel River. And the first ferry is the Peel River, if I'm remembering everything correctly. And Basically, what has happened is the ice had thawed somewhat asynchronously, which had caused some massive flooding. So the ferry had been like up on blocks 30 feet above the waterline. And overnight, the water rose so much that it lifted the ferry off the blocks, took the ferry downstream, and um, full on wiped out the entire kind of like ramp that the cars would use to to go down and get onto the ferry. And they weren't sure how long it was going to take to repair that. So it was kind of the sort of thing where I spent as yeah probably 24 hours thinking I wasn't going to be able to make it to the Arctic Ocean. Um, and what I kind of decided to do was I slowed down a little bit, but I just kind of kept meandering my way north and made myself a little bit of an amended route, trying to figure out with you know needing to make a return trip by a given date, how long I could wait for that ferry to reopen. And I got really lucky. I actually had this really beautiful experience when I was at the sign for entering the Northwest Territories. I stopped to take a picture of the van and the dogs. And another gentleman stopped and got out of his vehicle. And he was actually spreading his mother's ashes in that area. Um, and we got to talking and I asked where he was coming from. And he said he was coming from Inuvik. And it took my brain a second to realize that that meant he was southbound, which much which must mean that the ferry was reopened and kind of had this, like, I just, it was so giddy with excitement that I asked him if I could hug him. And he said he hadn't had a hug in years and we both started crying. And <laughs> it was just like really, really beautiful. Um, and then I, I actually ended up just crossing the, crossing the river that night, um, just kind of like going for it. And then later after crossing the river, realizing that like, oh gosh, I hope it doesn't flood again and trap me north of the Peel River now, but it wasn't a problem. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a little bit of a close call there. And again, kind of the sort of thing that hopefully won't be a problem for you if you're going uh, a little bit later in the season. That's what I was thinking. That whole story is just better that it happens northbound than southbound and you can't get out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Well, thank you everyone so much for listening. If you'd like to keep in touch, myself and Colby, you can find us online at theengineersuvanlife.com or on Instagram. You can find Kayla and her Vernagerie at College Without Borders on Instagram, YouTube, or the old.com or writing at journeydogtrading.com. See you next week.